0: Well, good afternoon. Hey, I'm just saying free food and free child care, that's a no-lose proposition. Can we just agree on that? And i just like to say that even if you never want to come back here again, you should still show up for that and you're forgiven because it's free food and free child care. I'm just saying. So our kids are older now, and so – all right, I'm going to put that top back on there because I'm going to knock that over. The, um, so they kind of get themselves to their own places because our oldest is 18 – but, but I remember the days when you couldn't even blink your eyes, right, for fear that your kids were going to be somewhere where they weren't supposed to be. So, uh, so we appreciate you guys uh, if you've got littles, and we're going to always make sure we accommodate that because we know that's a tough season of life, the sleepless years, the sleepless years. So I'm feeling a little self-conscious about my age tonight. So yeah, I, uh, uh, in the circle time before the, the service, uh, Anthony's laughing already. Uh, see if you if you tease the pastor before he preaches you 're going to be a sermon illustration right that's just that 's just a rule right it 's a rule it 's a rule and so so uh they, he uh, he turned to the worship team they were awesome tonight, right first time being here at City Life Suffolk, so appreciate you guys being here. He turned to them and said, "You guys got all the hymns ready right and they were like i don 't know what do you mean you know was there miscommunication and he 's like no, nah, we don 't really do hymns and then he looked at me and he said, "Well, maybe Fred because he 's old and uh and I was already a little sensitive about that because when I was leaving the Newport News campus earlier today to drive over here, I ran into one of our young adults who's in our fantasy football league and one of my sons is drafting for him and I said, JJ, where are you, where, why, why aren't you going to be at the draft? He said, I'm going to a concert. And I said, well, well, who are you going to see? And he said, "Base Nectar. Yeah, and your reaction was my reaction. I was like, I don't even know who that is, right? I never heard of him before. And I, I said, so I said, I don't even know who that is. He said, well, it's EDM. I know, yeah, and then my next reaction was the same as the first. I don't know what that is either, and so instead of him telling me what it was, he said, don't worry about it, and and it wasn't because he was being disrespectful, it's because he knew if he told me what it stood for, I wouldn't know what that was either, which apparently is electronic dance music, right? All the worship team, they're all nodding their head, so I know, so I Googled it, right? I Googled it when I got in the truck. I was like, I got to know what this is. And uh, sure enough, and I listened to a little bit of that, and I came to the conclusion, I am old, because that's not my music. So I'm just saying, we're going to now sing How Great Thou Art and move on with the rest of the service. So I'm, I'm excited to be here. I, know I don't get to come as, as often as I, I'd like, but every time I drive over here, I remember the moment this campus was started. And it was started the summer of 2007. Many of you have heard the story uh, before. Uh, it started in the summer of 2007 because I was still living in Richmond at the time at the church that we came from. But we, we God had already spoken to us about coming here. We were we were had our house for sale. Uh, the church that we were at knew that we were moving. I was part of this uh, the the uh, one of the staff pastors there and had been there for 17 years. And so this was a big move for us. And we were uh, planning to come sometime in the fall, but we got word that there was a young military family, Navy family the Canalses, who had just had a baby, and their son was in the NICU. And so I was like, I'm I'm going. I want to go, you know, visit this family and pray with this child. And we might not be living there yet, but my heart as a pastor is like, we want to pastor now. And so I hopped in our our car and drove here in the middle of the night and got to the Portsmouth Naval Hospital. They were at home by then, and I found a nurse up there on the ward, uh, talked to her about who I was and why I was there, so she let me go back. Uh, and pray with them. I think it was Jonah, little Jonah Kanaus. And and uh, I remember praying with that baby in the NICU. And on the way home that night, I came by way of 64, 664 to get here. But on the way home, I was like, we're going to be living in this region and 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 really planning a church here. The church was just a year and a half old, barely 100 people meeting in a movie theater off of Victory Boulevard at Real Cinema. And, uh, and so many of you were in the church back then. And and, uh, and driving home, then I want to go back in a, uh, in a different way because I want to ride through communities and neighborhoods. And so I pulled up my map, and uh, I mean an actual paper map, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and looked. And I was like, there's this Route 17 that I can hop onto. And so I got onto Route 17 and started driving and, uh, and needed gas. And I stopped at the Exxon station. Just if you take a ride out of here, eventually there's going to be this right little Exxon station there in Carrollton on the right. And I was standing there at the gas pump. I kid you not, as clearly as I've ever felt God speak to me, he said, City Life is going to be here one day. And, uh, and I kept that in my heart uh, all those years. And so we didn't even have a vision for planting campuses. I didn't even know what that meant. Were we supposed to relocate or move? And, uh, but when we began to realize this was going to be part of our vision, we knew that we were going to plant a campus here in Suffolk. And so uh, you all, come on, are the fruit of that seed 11 years ago. And you can clap. Come on, you can clap for that. I'm sharing that with you because I never want you to lose your sense of connection to the reality that you're still a seed. You're still a seed because God's planting you now for what's supposed to come in the future. The campuses that are going to be planted out of this campus, the impact that you're going to have in this region, the faces that are going to be in this room with you this time next year. We have an appetite for growth, not because we have an ego, but because we have a mandate. And the mandate is not found in Matthew 28 where we think it's found of, of, of uh, going to all the world. He was That's the restatement of the original mandate that came in Genesis 1 when God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. That wasn't just a command for procreation. It was a prophetic declaration for the church that would one day be to be fruitful, to grow in the character of Christ, and to multiply to reach your region and to reach your city that's at arm's length. And so, Father, I just pray for this campus tonight. Before we just get into the message that I believe you put on my heart, Father, I pray for the seed that this campus was and the seed that this campus is. And we just say yes and amen to every dream that you have over this campus. We say yes and amen to every campus that's going to come out of here, God. And we say yes and amen to every person, every person that's going to be reached by the people who are in this room in Jesus' name? Come on, and everybody said, "Amen, Amen." Hey, I'm gonna. We're gonna spend some time uh, in a text that's gonna set us up for where we're headed. Does that make sense? So, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter eight, and uh, and and this is gonna kind of, uh, I think, get our hearts prepared for what I feel like God wants to do. And so I love. This is one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. Its 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 popular name is the is the story of the woman with the issue of blood, Uh, and it's the incredible story of a woman. Uh, who uh, was in a crowd and reached out and grabbed the hem of the garment of Christ and found healing in that moment. But I want to do a little bit of background to help us to understand the significance of that moment and why she did some of the things that she did and and what made the timing of what she did so significant. And so we, we know that Jesus had about three years of ministry. Right. He, he began his ministry with his baptism with John the Baptist, and then for the next three years, he began his ministry, uh, and, and then uh, leading up to his death and uh, resurrection, right, and ascension back into heaven. And so his years of ministry really divided up into three phases. There's the year of inauguration. That's the year of who is this guy, and how is he doing all the things that he's doing. And that led into the year of popularity, which was after 12 months of him demonstrating power like the world had never seen and authority over scripture like no one had ever heard, they began to realize, we think this guy is the Messiah. And that led into the year of opposition, and it led into the year of opposition because once the religious leaders realized that people believed him to be the Messiah, that it was going to displace their authority and the prestige that came with that. And so this story is right at the very end of the year of popularity. Now, that's important to understand because you realize it's one of the reasons why there was such a massive crowd that was following him wherever he went because there's two years of Jesus' life in ministry. And so this woman shows up on this day with the belief that this guy is the Messiah. This is God's Son, the Savior of the world, and if anybody can help me, I know it's going to be him. She reaches for the hem of his garment because all the way back in Numbers 15 that Anthony almost read when he was up here doing the announcements, right? 37 to 41, if you're a note taker, we're going to cover a lot of textual ground tonight. The PDF is going to be uploaded onto the website, so don't get frustrated. If we move through it quicker, than you can write it down. Uh, Numbers 15, 37 to 41, is the mandate to the priests that the garment that they were supposed to wear would have tassels sewn onto, onto the hem of their garment, right? So they wore these really long robes, and at the bottom of it, there were tassels. Some people believe that there were bells that were intermingled with those as well. And those tassels were there, as it says, you could if you read in the text, in Numbers 15, was so that when priests were walking throughout the community people would see those tassels and it would be a visual reminder that as children of God, you had an obligation to live according to God's ways. There wasn't anything significant about the tassel itself. It's just one of the creative ways, because God created us, he knows that there's visual stimulus, right? There's a connection with vision and who we are and our thought processes. And so he wanted to create something visual for them. And so he just picked. We're going to put tassels on the hem, and then when people see that, it's going to be a reminder. Now, the Hebrew word for tassel is the Hebrew word kanaf, K-A-N-A-F. Now that's significant for us to know the word because when you get to Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, listen to what Malachi writes. Now this is hundreds of years later after Numbers was written. Malachi 4 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, right? This is prophecy of the coming of Christ, will rise with, listen to what it says, with healing in his wings, and you will go free. Leaping with joy like calves let out to the pasture. Now Malachi does something interesting here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and instead of using the word that would have been anatomically correct for a bird, for those wings, he picks the word canaf. Which which literally means the, the extremity of something, it means the edge of something. And so in poetic language, it was commonly used to refer to a bird's wings because that was the edge of them, right? But the fascinating thing that the Holy Spirit is doing here, many writers in Scripture, one author, is the Holy Spirit was connecting this idea of healing in his wings of the Messiah to the hem of the garment of the priest. And so a legend was born out of that over centuries of time, right? Malachi 400 years of prophetic silence before John the Baptist breaks it coming onto the scene, that for those 400 years during that time, there was a legend that came about that when the Messiah would come, there would be healing in the hem of his garment. Right? So this woman shows up in the crowd. You can read the story for yourself. She's spent all of her money. She's desperate, right? I like to call it, she's reached her desperation revelation. May we all come to that place at some point in our life. And she's got nothing left except a hope and a belief that this man is the Messiah and that there's healing in his wings. And so she fights her way through this crowd and she grabs a hold of his cloak. And in that moment, The Bible says that Jesus literally felt power leave his body and enter into this woman and brought healing to her. Luke 8, verse 40, it says on the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had had been waiting for him. Why? Because it's the end of the year of popularity. And then a man named Jairus, a leader of a local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him. He's having his own desperation revelation to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. And a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, this is also given to us, I believe it's in uh, the, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, if you want to read to their accounts, and you can get the whole picture. We're just going to read Luke tonight. Jesus went with him. He was surrounded by the crowds, and a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years. All right, verse 44, coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Jesus says, who touched me? Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, the whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. And when the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble And she fell to her knees in front of him. I'm going to talk a little bit about why that is. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him. And that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He told him, your daughter is dead. There's no, no use troubling the teacher now. But, Jesus, but when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, come on, don't be afraid. Just have faith and she will be healed. How could he not have faith after what he had just witnessed? See, this woman is hiding because she's Jewish. And in, in Jewish law... If, if you've been in contact with blood, or if you have a, a, a blood type condition, and then there's another long list, like different skin diseases, and those are all explained, another sermon for another time, but, the, but, but she is ceremonially unclean because of her blood. And then if she touches anybody, they are now ceremonially unclean. Does that make sense? And so this woman, she's hiding because she's hoping and believing that he's the Messiah. But if he's not the Messiah and she hadn't been healed and she had reached out and just touched some random rabbi, when, when people in the crowd would have realized what she had done and who she was, she probably would have been stoned to death right there on the spot. That's how serious of a violation it was if you were unclean, uh, religiously unclean, for you to make somebody else unclean. right? It was, it was a crime of crimes in, in, a, in a religious society. And so as you begin to look at all the things that defined this woman's life, you're like, this woman is one of the greatest heroes of the Bible. Her faith, her hope, her courage, what, what she was willing to risk, All because she had experienced her desperation revelation, she knew that Jesus was the only one who had the power to heal. But every time I read this story, I always have the same thought. And my thought is this I wonder who else was in the crowd that day who needed a touch from Christ and didn't get it. I've entitled this message In the Crowd because I think this is where most of us live our lives. Not like this woman. But with all the other people in that crowd that day, and we don't even know who their names are. And I think many of them came that same day for the same reason. Some were there as spectators. We certainly understand that. But some were there because they had a need. But for some reason, they chose to stay in the crowd. They chose to remain hidden for whatever reason it was. And they went home that day without the miracle that they could have had if they had only believed Which brings me to my next question is, how many times do we gather together in church services, needing the power of Christ in our own lives, but yet we choose to stay hidden in the crowd? How many times have you gone to service and you needed a touch from Christ? Maybe not as desperate as this woman. Maybe not as desperate as her. But you were still facing a situation and a circumstance that was beyond you something bigger than you could deal with on your own, and, and something inside of you felt, and maybe you've never had the words to articulate it before, but in hearing this story, you begin to connect with it now, is that, is that there have been times where, where, where we needed a touch from Christ, and yet we went home the same way we came, which leads to my next question is, how many of us here tonight need that kind of touch from Christ? But because we're afraid to be conspicuous, we stay in the crowd and we don't experience the touch that Christ is so ready and willing to give. You know, I had plans a couple of weeks ago. I was going to talk about something completely different because I don't get here that much. And so I wanted to really talk about the vision behind City Life, the story behind City Life, how excited we are about what God's speaking to us about, these three words of encounter and embrace and engage. And, uh, and every time I sat down... To, uh, uh, to, to start writing that message out, um, God just kept speaking to me uh, about this message, and so that's how this, this sermon was born, and, and I believe it's because he knew who was going to be here tonight, and, uh, and, and he knew the need that you had, and can I just tell you that we're willing to be conspicuous, to challenge you to be conspicuous, So, you can encounter Christ in a very real way. You you might say, Well, Fred, it was easier then because Jesus was there. And what I would say to you is, He's more here now than He was then. Because because then He had limitations of time and space because He had taken on human form, right? Philippians chapter 2. So, He could only minister to one person at a time. But He's more present now because He can minister to every person everywhere in the whole world at the same time, right? He's shed his humanity, picked up just his divinity, and now he has the omnipresence that comes through being divine, and he has the time and attention to be just here, just for you, and for every person that's in the room. So you've got to ask yourself, am I just going to stay in the crowd, or am I willing to be seen? All right, so that sets us up for where we're headed. All right, little Bible trivia. You ready? If I said the name Azariah to you, who is that? Any takers? A little Starbucks action up here just in case. There is one, but not this guy. Somebody else. What, what, What did she say? What did she say? Well, no. What did you say? Go, somebody's cat. Go. Okay, just for creativity, you're going to get a car, right? Because we reward courage and sarcasm at the City Life Church. I, I, I we'll, we'll get, This is my last card. So, and then there's a couple more names. So, if you're, if you're winning, right? How about Mishael? Anybody? Any takers? Mishael. Hananiah. There you go. Daniel's three. There you go, Carrie. Come on. Nice, right? You don't know those names, right? But if I had said Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, from watching Veggie Tales, you would know who they are. All of our theological training comes from a cartoon. Praise the Lord, right? Shad it's it's interesting. We we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through their Babylonian names, right? But their Hebrew names, right, were were Hananiah. Mishael, and Azariah. Now, if I said Belteshazzar, maybe some of you would be a little bit more familiar with that, but you might not know him either. But that's Daniel, right? It's interesting, right? We, we know Daniel through his Hebrew name, and we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through their Babylonian names. But it's, it's, their, it's their Hebrew names and the meanings that associate with them that are so powerful that God put these four men together. Daniel means God is my judge. If you're going to leave here tonight with the touch from Christ that I believe that he wants to give to you, then you've got to have a Daniel heart. It means that you've got to say, I don't care what anybody else in this room thinks, because God is my judge. Hananiah means God has shown grace. If you're going to experience the touch that Christ wants to give to you tonight, you've got to have a Hananiah heart. It means that you're not going to let the lie of the devil that he's been whispering in your ear that you don't deserve what God wants to do in you because of the shame that you carry for the life that you've been living. Maybe you're living now. Maybe because of even your plans for later, right? There's a shame that sometimes is attached to us because of what the devil speaks over us. And what I would say to you is, Hananiah, that God has shown grace. None of us will ever deserve the touch from Christ that we need from him. Not ever. So if you're waiting to get to a place where you can earn it, then you're never going to get it. If you're going to experience a touch from Christ tonight, you've got to have a Hananiah heart. You've got to have a Daniel heart. You've got to have a Hananiah heart. And you've got to have a Mishael heart. Mishael means in Hebrew, who is what God is. Which means there's no one like him. He stands alone. Which means that whatever need that you have, it's God saying to you, you might get a measure of that need met from things and people in this world, but it's not going to be fully met except through the hand of God because he can do the impossible. If you're going to experience the touch that I believe that Christ wants you to have tonight, you've got to have a Daniel heart, a Hananiah heart, and a Mishael heart. And if you have a Daniel heart and a Hananiah heart and a Mishael heart, then you get an Azariah story. Because Azariah means God has helped. It's interesting, isn't it, that 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 all of these talk about who God is until you get to the last one, Azariah, which means that God has helped me. Right? Is it? It means that you carry a part of your story that you can look back in a moment in time and think of a time where God did something for you and in you that you knew nobody else could do. A Daniel heart, a Hananiah heart, a Mishael heart leads to an Azariah story. So I want to talk about three life lessons that I think that we get out of the book of Daniel. But we're going to look at them through the lens of a question. And a question that I hope you're going to be willing to ask yourself. And at the end of each one of these, I'm going to ask you to do something. That if the one that we're talking about is you, then there's going to be a moment where you're going to have an opportunity to stand up. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything else, but we're just going to pray for you in that moment. And then we're going to move on to the next one. Right? We're not going to do the get you to stand and then come here and then go to a room and right. the next thing you know you've been led through all these different hoops and there's a time and a place for those things. But for tonight, it's just going to be this moment. In the crowd, you've got to decide, are you going to be in the crowd or are you going to reach for the hem of the garment of Christ? And I'm just telling you, if you're willing to reach, he's here and he can do something in your life that is absolutely and completely unexplainable Because he's just as powerful now as he was 2,000 years ago. He loves you just as much as he loved that woman. So the first one is this. Is Jesus first in my life? Somebody say, is Jesus first? Daniel 1, 1 through 2 says, During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. It's a powerful picture for us that here's this invading king comes, conquers, The last remaining part of who Israel is, right? The northern kingdom has already fallen to Assyria hundred years years ago, and now Judah is, is, is remained a stronghold. Now they're falling to Babylon to Babylon, right? Israel has come to its end of itself. And Nebuchadnezzar goes into the temple, into the sacred place, and and gets some of the sacred utensils, and he takes them back to Babylon. And he puts them in this treasury. Now, it's interesting that the Bible tells us that he puts it in the treasure house of his God. It's called a treasure house because Nebuchadnezzar ruled over one of the greatest empires this world has ever seen. So Judah is not the first kingdom that he's conquered. And what he's got is a collection. How many people here collect some things, right? You collect things, right? He he collects treasures from kingdoms that he conquered. And so in this room, he's got all of these artifacts that he's gathered together over his life. And many of them are artifacts that were connected to the religion of the people that he conquered. It's interesting because even though we know these were artifacts that are connected to the one true God, to Nebuchadnezzar, they were just artifacts of a God because he believed that there were many gods. And so in this room, here are the actual only sacred artifacts that belong there, but they're mingled in and mixed in with all of these other ordinary things. They weren't ordinary to the people of his day, but we know from God's perspective, they were ordinary, and there were some that were sacred. And I think this paints an incredible prophetic picture for us. Because for some of you here, this might be what Christianity is for you. Christianity is just part of who you are relative and compared to so many other things that are in your life. When you think about all your life roles, that for some of you, if you were to make that list, right, you just you want to take a nap because it's so long. Right? Father, husband, mother, wife, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, employee, neighbor, coach. We can just keep on going. And it could be that for you, being a follower of Christ is just on the list instead of being the context over everything else. Being Jesus first means that you identify first as a follower of Christ above all. You think about all these students that are going back to school. All the different subjects. What are some subjects that you guys have in school? Math. Reading. English, history, science, stuff that you don't want to do, praise, right, honesty in the house of God. But they don't go to a different school for every one of the subjects. They go to one school. Because in that school are all the subjects that represent their education. A lot of football fans in the room. There are a lot of players on a team. Now, some players, they're called, they're a franchise, fill in the blank, quarterback, which means that they're more important than the rest of the players. But you know what? They're still a player. Because at the end of the day, at some point, they're going to retire, right, and the franchise continues on with new players. The franchise is the context for everything else that's happening on that team. You've got to make a decision at some point in your life, are you just – going to be the kind of follower of Christ that's just part of who you are, or is it going to define everything else about you? Because once you make that shift, it changes the kind of father that you become. It changes the kind of husband that you're going to be. It changes the kind of neighbor that you are. See, when Christianity is just part of your life, then we can set it aside when it's not convenient, but then, when we get to the parts of the Bible where Jesus says things like, Love your neighbor, who might also be your enemy, let's put those two verses together, right? When Jesus is my primary identifier, then I can't just lay down my Christianity and be who I want to be. I have to strive to be the person that I know Christ wants me to become. At some point, something shifts in your life when you say, I want Jesus to not just be a part of my life, I want him to be over all of my life. And it could be that for some of you you came in here tonight, and you would say, Fred, Jesus is a part of who I am. But you know what? He's not really over it all. He's not the context that defines everything else. So this is our first moment. So I'm just going to challenge you. If you're here tonight, and you would say, Fred, I'm a devoted follower of Christ, but I know Jesus doesn't have the place and the position in my life that I know he needs to have. Could I just say to you, the biggest turning points in your life is when God does something in your heart supernaturally to enable the shift to begin to come. So I'm just going to invite you to stand up where you are. We're not going to linger in this moment very long, and then we're just going to pray. But if if, if you're here tonight and you would say, what you're talking about speaks to me, then what I would say to you is don't hide in the crowd. Don't hide in the crowd. Anybody here? Come on. Thank you. It's good, isn't it? It feels good. Father, we pray for everybody that's standing up right now. And and we know that you're in front of them just like you were in front of this woman 2,000 years ago. And, Father, we, we, we know that right now, as, even as they stood up, it was as though they could feel the hem of your garment in their hand. And so we pray for the same power that moved Jesus out of your body 2,000 years ago, that it's going to move from you right now and in, 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 in touch every one of these people that just stood. And that there's going to be a transference of who you are into who they are so, Jesus, you can become Lord over every part of who they are. I pray that when they leave here tonight, when they wake up tomorrow, and every day for the rest of this week, they're going to feel, we know that woman, too, that she felt different. I pray they would feel different, that there would be a sense of Jesus first and everything else second. Come on, in Jesus' name, and everybody said, come on, amen. Come on, you can clap. It takes courage. It takes courage. Number two, who is your company? Who is your company? Daniel 1, 8 through 16, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods, which incidentally are all the foods that I love. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. Now, if we were to keep reading through all those verses, you know that that, that Daniel and uh, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had been selected as, as noble children from noble families to become a part of Nebuchadnezzar's court, which was common practice in that day, that you would bring capable people from the conquered nation to bring them into your court so that they could advise him on how to assimilate the conquered people into their country. You with me? And then that they would get a vision, right, for Babylon and this empire, and then they would bring their influence to lead people to keep the empire together from falling apart, from fracturing, from revolts. So Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and, and Azariah were chosen and so they, they, they had access to training, and they began school and education, and they had, they had access to the king's food. But it, being a Jewish person, they had strict dietary laws, so they couldn't eat most of the stuff that was there, right? So if, if we could just be honest, most of us, right, we would have said, well, I guess I don't have really any options, <laughs> right? I mean, God brought me here. He must want me to try at least a little bit of it. What, is that bacon? I don't even know what that is, but it looks good. You'll get that later. But Daniel said, we're not eating this food. The implication of the text is they were not the only four Jewish men there. But they're the only four that said, we're not going to eat it. Now, this guy, he's, he's nervous because he said, if, if I don't do what the king has said, and all of a sudden you guys, when the king passes through, you're looking a little pale and a little famished. Guess who's my head's going to roll, not yours. And Daniel says, oh, you just wait and see. So at the end of the time period that was allotted, they didn't eat any of the food. They just ate vegetables or whatever else they could find that 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 was suited according to the dietary laws that were consistent with, with Levitical principles. And at the end it says that they were healthier than all the rest of the people that were there. Right? Now that's not a mandate for being a vegetarian. That's just a miracle of what, right? How can we just agree on that? This is evidence of a miracle, not a mandate for a diet. Just throwing out that there for the record. because God can do incredible things. He can do things that, that are beyond understanding. And what's so powerful in this story is that these four young men, right, they've been imprisoned. Most of everybody that they've known is slaughtered. Their nation has fallen. If anybody was in a fragile emotional state, it's these guys. It's these guys. We read these stories sometimes and we forget what they went through. If anybody had a, a reason to just throw in the towel, it would be them. But they did not let the crowd that they were now in become the company that they now chose to keep. 1 Corinthians 15, If you're a parent of a teenager, you better teach this to your kids. Bad company corrupts good character. Yeah, it's not just a saying, it's a Bible verse. Bad company corrupts good character. Now, this is an interesting verse because the same guy that wrote this, the Apostle Paul, also wrote Romans 10. 9 through 14. Now, I'm just going to reference that, but this is the famous verse, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then he goes on this, this incredibly powerful prophetic and poetic, right? It's spoken word before we even knew what spoken word was. And, and he ends up in the place of saying that blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, what's interesting is that when you, when you read Romans 10 and you read 1 Corinthians 15, it appears at first that Paul believes two different things at two different times. Because at one point he says, you better go out there and tell everybody about Jesus. And then to the church of Corinth he says, hey, bad company, it corrupts good character. Right? You, you better be careful. But the word he uses for company isn't just some generic word for people. This, this, this word, it means the people that you commune with. It means companionship. It's actually used to describe the intimacy of the romantic relationship of husband and wife. It's this word, homilia. That's the word he chooses. So when we realize that, 1 Corinthians 15 in Romans 10 are actually the perfect pairing with one another. Because Paul is saying in your life, your company, your community, your homilia cannot be the people that you're trying to reach. When you go out into the world, right, bad company corrupts good character. When you're going out into the world to begin to engage and interact and reach and even build relationship with people of poor character, which makes you vulnerable, right, it makes you vulnerable. You're vulnerable if your life is not tethered to a homilia or a community called the local church. So the crowd that you're reaching cannot be the company that you're keeping, The company that you keep is the church family that you call home so that you're safe to now go out into a world that can corrupt you to reach them with the message of the gospel of Christ. In Matthew 16, 17 to 18 is the great declaration where Jesus said that he's going to build his church. It's the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out ones. Right before that, he has this interesting play on in words with Peter, where he, right? He calls him Peter, and upon this rock. And so many of us growing up in the church were taught that it means little rock and big rock, but I don't think that's really accurate. Really what it means is individual rock and an outcropping of rocks. The, the words he uses here, he's talking about Peter. He uses a word which means a rock that is by itself. And then when he says, upon this rock I will build my church, the ecclesia, the word he uses there means an outcropping of rocks, meaning that it's a bunch of rocks that have been joined together to build a wall. See, when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, part of that journey is that God is taking you out of your individual life, and he wants to build you into the wall of his church to become a part of the community of faith, the body of Christ, to become your spiritual family. It's not to displace the family that you have. It's to add to it. And so what I would ask you, and this might be for teenagers today, As you look back over what school was like for you last year, maybe you can ask yourself the question, was the company that I kept really, was it supposed to be the crowd that I was supposed to reach? Did you find yourself in a place of compromise? Did you find yourself doing things to fit in? Did you find yourself, your your witness for Christ was failing because you were afraid of rejection? God puts us in the crowd of the world to be a light for Christ not to be compromised by it. Maybe it's not just the kids in the room. Maybe it's the grown-ups in the room. Maybe when you go to work. Maybe when you're hanging out with your college buddies. Maybe it's when you're getting together with this group or that group that you find yourself becoming a part of their company when you're just supposed to be in that crowd so that you can be an example for Christ. So I'm just going to ask you, this is our second place to stand up. It might be that you stand up for everything here tonight. And you know what I would say is, good for you. Good for you. And if I preached about ten more points, which we could, you might stand up for all of those too. right? But at some point, you got to say, I'm not hiding in the crowd anymore. right? I need the touch that Christ can bring. So I'm just, if you're here, a teenager or an adult, and you would say, I, this is part of the pattern of my life. I tend to just blend into the company that I'm in instead of being the example that I know that I'm supposed to be. I'm just going to invite you to stand where you are. I'm not going to linger in this moment long. I'm just going to just, just stand where you are. This is part of your journey. If you're the only one, then you stand proud. Father, I pray for the people that are standing here tonight. Father, I pray, I pray, I pray that for the rest of their days, a room just like this is always and forever going to be the company that they keep that in this moment as they stand, that their heart is going to be tethered to the family of God, that their heart is going to be connected in a supernatural way with a bond that they cannot even explain to the family of God, and that when they are out in the world tomorrow, Monday, that they're going to feel different, they're going to be different because they know that the crowd that they're in is no longer the company that they keep. I pray, Father, believing that for some people here, they're going to have to have some hard conversations with some people. They're going to have to be willing to say, "I can't do. I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't want. I, I can't do that anymore." You're going to help them find the words, but they're going to begin to share about why there's going to be a change, and maybe they're going to bring some of those people back with them next week. Father, every person that's outside of the four walls of this church, they all are part of a company that's supposed to become a crowd so that this can become their family. I pray, Father, that everything that the enemy is going to put in front of them this week by way of temptation, that you would make them ready for it even now. Give them a strength to say no to the things they're supposed to say no to and yes to the things that they're supposed to say yes to. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody said. Amen. Come on, you clap for those people. (laughs) Applaud some courage. All right, for the next hour. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. We're going to do this this last one, and then we're going to close with a song. We're going to do this one a little quicker just to respect your time. But this last one is called, Are, are You Neglecting Your Gift? Are You Neglecting Your Gift? In Daniel 1.17, it says, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom over these students in Jesus' name, if you're a parent, right? Amen. Right? Come on. Gave him an anointing for school. Who knew that? That was in the Bible better be praying that in the spirit over every one of your kids all night, Sunday night. And God gave Daniel the special ability. He gave him something extra to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. See, if we're not careful, we'll look at all the people that have something special and we'll feel left out. It can happen. It can happen. It could be that you're here sometimes on Saturdays and you're looking around the room and you're saying, you know, it just seems like God gave them more than what he gave me. And you know what? The answer to that question is yes, he does. But he gets to do that because he's God. But just because he gave, listen to me, just because he gave someone else more doesn't mean that he gave you less. Just because he gave them more doesn't mean he gave you less. He gave us exactly what we need to fulfill the purpose and the destiny. And with the more comes more, right? Because when you get to the New Testament, right, to whom much is given, much is required, right? And so people that have more, there's more expected of them, right? Because it's connected to their destiny and calling. He gives us gifts and anointings and abilities and powers and things like that, not to set us apart, but to prepare us for the purpose that he has for us. And he has a purpose for every person in this room, and he's given you everything that you need to go and do it. But for, for some of you, listen, for some of you, you're neglecting your gift, which means that you're not putting it to work the way that you should in the church that you call home. If it's not here and you're part of another church, then what this is for you is to say, if you listen to me, if you don't have the time to invest to build God's kingdom the way that you know that you should, then something in your life is out of order. I'm just telling you. Right? Another sermon for another time. If you don't have the, the, the funds to give in the way God expects us to give, then something in our life is out of order. If we don't have the emotional energy as men, oh, come on. To love our wives the way we're supposed to, then something is out of order in our life. All right? We could just keep going with this list. You have a gift that God has given to you. And can I just tell you part of your gift is to put it to work into the church that you call home. Because all those people that have more, listen to me, their gift is not complete without yours. And yours isn't complete without them. And we're not making this stuff up. Daniel 2, 17 to 18. Then Daniel went home, told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, what had happened. What's he talking about? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Calls in all the people that are gifted in visions and things like that. And he says, I want you to interpret the dream. And they said, okay, what's the dream? And he says, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You've got to tell me the dream and tell me the meaning. And everybody's like, well, that's impossible. And he says, if you don't do it by such and such a time, I'm going to kill everyone. Right? That's pressure. So when the person who's responsible, because they can't do it, shows up to kill Daniel Shadrach, right? Read the story. He was coming to kill them. Daniel's like, hey, what are you doing today? I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Why? Tells him the story. Daniel says, let me go talk to the king. Goes, he says to the king, just give me some time. And he goes, we already know he's been given the power and the ability to interpret dreams, but what does he do? the first thing that he does is he goes to these friends and he urges and he asks. listen to what he says, he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men. He goes to them and says, I need you to pray. He has the power, but he knows he needs their prayers in order for the breakthrough to come. Even if you've been given special ability, right, you'd need the body of Christ to make you complete. And even if you feel like you've been given less, come on, there's times when you've got something that you bring to the table that even people that have extra need from you so that their ministry. We we need each other. This is part of the church of being together. I'm gonna to invite the worship team to come back up and as they're coming, we're gonna do our last one. If you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, I know I'm one of those people that's neglecting my gift. And that might mean lots of things. It could be that, that because of shame, you've felt like, I'm going to stay on the sidelines because of my story, right? And you need to break free from that, then tonight's going to be your night. It could be that you're neglecting your gift because you know that your life is out of order. You're busy beyond what you should because you've overcommitted yourself and you don't have the time to give that you should for the church that you call home. And you could just fill in the blank. But as you heard me talking, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm one of those people. I know that I'm not invested in the kingdom of God the way that I should be, and I want that to change, I'm just going to invite you to stand where you are, and I'm going to pray for you. Just stand where you are. Father, I pray for every person that's standing right now. I pray, Father, that you would give them supernatural clarity to understand how they need to begin to reorder and reorganize their life so that their gift can be put to work in your kingdom. Father, we know that everything that you ask of us, that you expect of us, that you don't make that demand of us if it's not possible. And I know for some of people that are standing now, they're standing in faith because they're just looking out over their schedule over this next week, and they're wondering there's no way that anything can change. I pray, Father, that you would give them supernatural insight for how to reorder the things in their life so the gift that you have put in them can be put into your church. I pray for the person that's struggling with shame, Father. I pray that you would just set them free. Just, I pray, Father, that they would feel a washing of your forgiveness like they've never felt before. That same feeling, if you've been working hard outside on a hot summer day and you step into that cool shower and it just washes away the day. Father, I pray you would do that for them on the inside right now. I pray for the person that's standing now and they've had a self-pity problem. They've just been looking at all the giftings of all the people around them and they've not yet taken the time to really see what you've gifted in them. I pray, Father, that you would enable them to come alive to see what you have done in them and give them a vision for what they're going to do for you in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody said, amen. Let's stand all together as we worship.